connect with each other. And then we're going to see the Great Commission. Um, so let's just take a moment for prayer. Uh, get ourselves ready. This is the, the, the what do we do about it. So the so what. And here it is. This tells us what to do. So let's take this time. Get ready. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for your mercy and grace and love. We thank you for your blessings and for your test. Father, we thank you for your amazing word. That no matter what we face in this life, no matter what circumstances come about, Father, you have given us instructions of how then should we live. So, Father, I just pray that as we uh, look into your word, that, Father, this will be real and alive and memorable to us so that we can indeed carry your word out to a lost and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see the the Great Commission this morning. I actually had a conversation um, with one of our missionaries who remain unnamed because of the fact that we are online right now. And uh, they are located in one of the uh, very uh, war-torn countries right now. And I've asked them, are you getting planning to leave? What are you planning to do? I had a Zoom call with them, and they said, no, we are staying here. This is a great opportunity for us. That our, our, uh, We have ample supplies. The place we live, don't, we don't have any problems. We can take our little girl to the park. We don't have any things like that. So we are, we are fully prepared. We're going to stay here, and we know the Lord has us here for a reason. So... What have they decided to do? Some people have decided to leave. And I, you know, that's between them and the Holy Spirit. I can't judge one way or another. But this group, um, uh, one of our missionaries has decided that they're going to stay. And they're going to be uh, be there to help other people as needed. And with the gospel of Christ, they are, they are ministering in a country that is uh, less than 2% evangelical anywhere in that country. So it is, a, it is a, a tough deal. But what are they called to do? Why are they there? And part of it is th- these verses that we're looking at. Based on these verses, people have been going out and telling other people about the Lord Jesus Christ since the first century, almost 2,000 years. They've been telling people that Messiah has come. And they had an amazing impact on the world. I was at a uh, synagogue uh, in Cochin, India. It's on the west coast of India. I've been there two or three times. And it's fascinating because when you walk in the door of the, the synagogue, it just looks weird. It looks out of proportion based on the way other rooms work and the way they look and the dimensions and all that. And the closer I got to looking at it, because when, when you walked in, you saw a uh, lampstand in the middle of the main room. And the, the head of the synagogue would walk around and the chairs were on the side of this area. And it was built to the same dimensions as the tabernacle. Took me a while to figure it out, but that's that's what it was. You had the little entry, you had the 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 tabernacle, you had a veil at the end, and behind that veil, guess what? Was a replica of the ark. 
you had the uh, lampstand and the table of showbread, and uh, you had the altar of incense. All of them placed there, and they would, and that was established 400 B.C. with part of the dispersion that went out from Babylon and northern Israel. It was established in 400 in around 400 B.C. And it's phenomenal to see that it was still going. But it's also sad to see they haven't accepted their Messiah yet. This was not a messianic Jewish church. This was a this was a Jewish synagogue. We went to another one one time, and it was located in Mumbai, which is Bombay, and uh, it was located in Mumbai, and uh, there were only a handful of people there that Shabbat morning, and we walked in to see if we could see it, didn't realize they were having services, so, but they graciously, one guy came out, and we said, there's not a lot of people left, and he said, they all went back to Israel. And he said, as soon as we can sell stuff, we're going too. So that was that was their plan. They're going back to the land promised to Abraham. Now, what happened with the missionaries that went there? Thomas landed in that area. The apostle Thomas, and he landed in the area of Cochin. He walked all the way across the subcontinent, the southern part of India, to a place... They call it now Chennai. Uh, we used to know it as Madras or Madras. You remember all those shirts that we got back when we were in high school and they bled and all that. And they looked good till you washed them and all that. That's where they came from was over there. And he was killed by a Hindu priest because there was too many converts moving to Christianity. So the Apostle Thomas, uh, they actually have his bones, so they say. And there's been a um, church built over the top of that. And so there is there is Thomas. But there's still a church of St. Thomas located in southern India, which you might wonder about some of their theology. But the Lord did say, go on out and your fruit shall remain. Well, it did. Still reaching people, still professing the name of Christ, in the middle of a hostile environment. So why did they go? These guys, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, read what it's got to say about the different disciples, all but one died as a martyr of these original disciples. And the only one that didn't was John. And not not for lack of trying. (laughs) John didn't try, but everybody else tried to kill him. And make him a martyr. And God said, nah, he, he's going to let him die a natural death. He was the only one. But the rest of them went into India. They went into Africa. They went into the, the northern area. And every one of them died a martyr's death. And why did they do it? Well, because they had a message. They had a message that was so great. Because it was a message about eternal life. And in Matthew 28... This is, what, this is what it's about. And it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority, we went through the exegesis last time, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is Jesus in resurrection body. He's meeting with his disciples. He said, I've got all the authority. Okay, that should settle a whole lot of arguments, right? And then he says, go. They translated this participle 
as an imperative, but it actually says having gone. That's not the command in this. The command assumes you're going to go. Okay? When, when, once you get there, there's a command, but it assumes that they are going to go. Therefore, and make disciples. This is the command. A disciple is mafetua. A disciple is a student. And it's a student who not only learns but witnesses by example. And that's what a disciple is. So <clears throat> it is the, uh, the word make. Make is not here. It's the make is poia. Oh, it's not a word that actually occurs here. And some people say that, that's make. But that is, uh, means to manufacture by the skill of your own hands. That's what the word poieo means. Now, he says, disciple people. That is, the, that is the command. And he says, all the nations. Now, sometimes the Jews lost sight of the fact that they would be a wit- to be a witness to all the nations. That's who they were supposed to be. When people came into Israel, they could join Israel... But they had to follow the commandments. They had to do the necessary things. They had to become legal citizens of Israel, if you will. And they were welcome into the the assembly. But he says, disciple all the nations. Baptizing. Baptizo. Baptizo is a word that means to identify with. We think, we hear baptism, we anglicize the word, and we think it's all about getting wet. And then we argue about whether it's by sprinkling or whether it's by immersion or whether it's by immersion forward or immersion backwards or three times forward and three times backwards. And the church is divided up over over baptism and the Lord's table more than anything else probably. And it's, it's all it's supposed to bring us together okay? because it means to identify, to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. And that's what baptism is about. To identify with, with his work. Not our own work. If we turn it into our own work. It really doesn't mean anything. If it's an identification with what he did. Mean, it means a lot. It says baptizing them. In the name of the Father. And the Son. And the Holy Spirit. That's so neat to see the Trinity come together. In one verse here. They're found all through the Bible, found Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you go through and you say, well, I don't see the word Trinity in the Bible. You run into anybody like that, and they may come knocking on your door from time to time. And say, Jesus really wasn't the Trinity, and what are you doing believing in the Trinity? I believe in the Trinity because that's what the Bible presents. I don't need the word Trinity when it proves it every way imaginable. Take the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you can find all of the attributes of God applied to each one of them. Now, if they have the attributes of God, they are God. Okay? So the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Now, it's kind of a mystery how they, why they separated, but it's telling us that they have three basic functions. Okay? The Father's a planner. Okay, he set everything in motion, but he didn't do it without the son. But the son's job is to execute the plan. And we all know you can have a great plan, but if you don't use it, it doesn't mean anything. So here's this plan, and then the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal it. 
So one plans it, one executes it, and the other reveals it. And that's their role, clearly defined in Scripture, and that's why we call them the Trinity. It's a good thing we have a backup for that since we're Trinity Bible Church. Okay? You may say, where's that found in Scripture? I'm going to say, where's the word sovereign found in Scripture? That they throw around a lot of places, and they actually added it in to 1 Timothy 6 just because it wasn't in there. But it means kingship. And you know where it comes from? All authority has been given to me. That is his sovereignty that he's talking about right there. He says teaching. Now see, what's the command? Disciple people. Do what? Baptize. Okay. Teach. Baptize, teach. You want to make more students. Not just converts. Because we've all seen that sometimes people convert to a cause they don't know anything about. That's not what the Lord's looking for. He wants people that know what they're doing. They know the object of the faith. They can tell people about the object of the faith. And he's saying, you go tell people. See, the, the, this is not supposed to be, the Great Commission is not supposed to be a silent operation. It's supposed to be anything but a silent operation. And he says, <clears throat> teaching, didaskaleo, to speak that which is didaskos, that which is true. Teaching them to observe. Observe is tereo, which is the word that means to keep because you see it's valuable. Often translated guard. Okay, What they have learned is so important, they need to treasure it up in their hearts and guard it. That's what they need. To observe all that I commanded you. Now, what did Jesus command these disciples? Okay? It wasn't 613, 16, they still argue over how many commandments are in the Mosaic Law. It wasn't that at all. It was the night before the cross, wasn't it? A, a new commandment, new in respect to quality, not time. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. It's all simple, and it boils down to that. And he said, I want you to go to teach them how to love one another. To do that requires that they be a witness of his love in their life. So he says, all that I commanded you, and then he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. (sighs) The end of the age? Is this just the age of Israel? Because that's the time in which he's speaking. I know some people, good people, good pastors, that think this is just for Israel. I beg to differ. Because this is ten days before the church age begins. And he's saying, you know, these are part of his final words to his disciples. Now, if you're getting ready to say goodbye to somebody, wouldn't you want to put the most important stuff (laughs) right there near the end? That's what he just did. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a promise, right? Now, these disciples, these disciples had witnessed the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He just told them. He said, that's what I've done. I came came back to show you what I've done as I'm referred to in the law of Moses, the prophets, and and the poets. That's, I I did it all. Okay, so they've just witnessed 
the Messiah in the flesh walking around on the streets. And they're to be talkative witnesses. You know, you find little things in the Mosaic law that if you witness a crime going on, you're required to testify as a witness. Somehow we forgot that. We get afraid and scared and they said, no, if you see this happening, you're supposed to come forward and report it. You're required to talk. Now, if you're a witness, you're required to talk. And Jesus told them the extent of his authority. Matthew 28, 18. We're breaking these, these three verses down. How, how much authority does he have? All of it. Where? In heaven and on earth. He then told them what to do with this message. In verses 19 to the first part of verse 20. Because these instructions are for after they go. Okay? They're going to have to go to get this done. They're going to have to go. They were to disciple all the nations, meaning to report what they had seen and be examples. That's what they were to do. This is just a small group of disciples right here, but he's, he says, having gone. It's just a, an assumption. Because the only way you're going to disciple all the nations is to go. Okay, Because the command is, disciple all the nations. So, how are you going to do that? They didn't have the internet. So they couldn't stay home. And start sending letters all over the place. They sent letters. But basically what they did. Was they went and talked to people. One on one. Face to face. They were to baptize them. Meaning to constantly identify. All believers with the trinity. Okay. If you're going to teach somebody something, one of the first things you need to teach them is the Trinity. Because a lot of people reject that. How could God be man? question that people would ask. Well, I, I thought God was a God. And that's part of the, the Muslim faith. Is they believe, they believe it's blasphemy to believe God can become a man. Ah, teaching them to observe. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are all God. Why would you identify them with all three members of the Trinity if they weren't co-equal, co-eternal people? Why, why, would, you, why would you do that? Now, <clears throat> they were to constantly teach them. Now, disciples are students. Some people can call themselves a disciple of Christ and they're not a student of the Word. But if, you're a, if you are a disciple of Christ... I'm not talking about belonging to the denomination or anything like that. If you're a disciple of Christ, you're a student. Otherwise, you're just kind of along for the ride. And that's part of what we ran into multiple times in different parts of the world. And I, I mentioned this before. We ran into people that, that in the great evangelical surge of the 1800s, they came in, they gave the gospel, and they didn't equip them, and they left. And they believed in Christ, and they passed that on. But they didn't. They they is leaving a baby on a doorstep is really all it was, and expecting him to learn how to walk and learn how to how to function as an adult. And so, <clears throat> we had an opportunity, and we saw it. And by the grace of God, we went to make disciples, which is what we're called to do. We've just uh, recent trip. 
um, up to a, uh, I'll leave the exact location off, but it's into an African country, and it went to the border of a hostile country and brought pastors out of the hostile country uh, to, the, to a conference where we were able to teach them. One of our other missionaries went from the Philippines and flew down there to join in, and so we had good teachers there that were able to teach them and disciple them. And not one of them had a full Bible. Pastors. And so our first order of business, as you can imagine, <laughs> get them a Bible. So we, that's, that's been arranged. That's what you have to do. But some people have been left even without a Bible. Many of them we ran into, all they had was a New Testament. They didn't know there was an Old Testament. We have, how many Bibles have you got at your house? Don't ask me, I'm a preacher. I got more than I know what to do with. I got every kind of Bible you can imagine, translation, not to mention the electronic ones. That are in my in my Bible programs. I've got all those, but those people don't have a Bible. Now, how are you going to make disciples if you don't have a Bible? In the first century, they didn't have the Bibles because there wasn't any that were there. But they did, and they were able to to see have the original disciples go in to give them the message and point out the importance of passing it on. Now. How, how well did that work? Well, for some of them, it lasted 2,000 years. Okay? And who do you praise for that? The Lord. But in this day, you get a Bible in their hands. Some of them we found, we have to teach them to read. The nice, sweet young lady, she was here at our missions conference in 2010, and she just written a book called Running on Broken Legs. I've ordered a bunch of copies for us. And she was she got polio as a kid and could just barely get around. She wanted to be a missionary. She was discouraged. She said, I'm going to be a missionary. I went to Papua New Guinea for 20 years. Developed a language, translated the Bible, and taught it to the natives. Now, that's dedication. That's what this is about. Take what you've got and go teach others so they can teach others. Now, to constantly teach... They were to stimulate their obedience, teaching them to observe by letting them see the value of following Jesus Christ. And they were to teach them how to love. The commandment I gave to you, that's what Jesus is telling these guys. You identify them with my work. Okay? That's what you do. You teach them about it and teach them to keep it to guard it, to treasure it up in their souls. And to follow it. And you need to be an example. When you went, when they went in there, they were to go in with character, honor, integrity, honesty, all of those things. You know what he told them the night before the cross? You're probably going to die for it. And they did. Now, he then gave them the promise of his presence. 
He then gave them the promise of his presence, even though he would no longer be visible. He still, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, <clears throat> you ever go into a situation, you don't know what to say? You want to say the right words the right way, and you want to do it all, and what do, what do you do? First thing you do is pray for wisdom, James 1.5. Knowing that he's going to give it to you. That's what he's going to do. So you pray for wisdom. And you know who's there with you, with us? The Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is him. So why should we be afraid of anything that we run into? Now, Luke 24.49 picks up on this message. Luke 24.49 says, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Clothed is the word enduno. And it's a word to be enveloped inside of. And hence to be clothed. That's interesting. Clothed with power from on high. Things are going to change with these guys. Yeah, they're going to change dramatically with this. Remember anything about clothing? You know, clothing is one of those sweet little words that you see in the scripture and you just blow by it. Because it's so common. We get up and we get dressed every day and you blow by it. till you stop and take a closer look. Seems like he clothed a couple of people in a garden who were naked. Okay? <laughs> this is what he's talking about. There's going to be something new until you're clothed with power from the Holy Spirit from on high. It's a divine power that you're going to receive. Now, they're to stay in Jerusalem till they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is from the Father. He inferred it in John chapter 14 and 16, the night before the cross. And now he's getting ready to fill in the blanks. They will observe the Trinity at work in complete harmony with one another. The Father has promised made this promise. Who's going to bring it about? Holy Spirit. Who's telling you? Me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved in bringing about this this promise. And it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany. You remember Lazarus? Where was he from? <laughs> he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now, what does it mean to bless somebody? Just wave your hands over and say, God bless you. The word bless, eulogeo, is a word that means to speak good to. Sometimes our blessing of people is a confrontation of what's wrong. But it's a blessing because if you're speaking good to them, blessing is not just a uh, ethereal type of thing. Oh, bless you, bless you. But no, blessing is speaking something good to somebody. He blessed them. That means that he told them things that we just read, read, we just read in Matthew 28. He told them things. This is what I'm going to do, what I'm getting ready to do. He's got more to tell them. He's not quite done with this discourse. But Bethany was just outside Jerusalem. It was a place that Jesus often stayed. It's only five miles outside of Jerusalem. So they'd 
you know, wake up and walk into the feast and then walk back and stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all that. It was where Simon the leper lived, one of the people that he healed. It is near the Mount of Olives. Uh, What's going to happen on the Mount of Olives? When Jesus comes back at the second advent, not the rapture, he's going to put both feet on the Mount of Olives. And he's going to split it in half. (laughs) And all these things have a little tagline. Thus you shall know that I am the Lord your God. They've got little taglines with them. And it's near the home. It is the home of Lazarus. So this is Bethany. He brings them all back there to Bethany. And then I noticed he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And the word hands is kind of like the word clothing. And let you, it's one of those things you just blow by and you blow by and you blow by until you stop and ask, what about these hands? And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. So what about, the, have we seen the Lord's hands at work anywhere before? Wow. It's a pretty neat thing that we're going to take a peek at right now. Because these hands cleansed lepers. Now think about it. These hands, the hands of the Lord, cleansed leopards. Matthew 8, 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And he was talking to the leper. It's a pretty neat deal because, you know, you couldn't touch a leprous person, otherwise you'd be rendered unclean. But he actually healed him on the way to touching him. That's what the grammar shows. He reached out his hands. He healed him then before he ever touched him. So as he touched him, he he was clean already. So these hands cleanse lepers. These hands remove fevers. Ah, Matthew 8, 14. Jesus came into Peter's home. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand. And the fever left her. And she got up and waited on him. I mean, she wasn't sick at all anymore. And she gets out of bed. You know, and gets up and waited on the Lord. Now, did he just heal her because he was hungry? Don't think so. There's more of a story than that. Where else do we see these hands? Because they raise the dead. Isn't that interesting? Matthew 9, verse 18. When he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came up, bowed down before him, and said, My daughter has just died. Come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. Verse 25. When the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Look at the power in these hands. These are the hands that brought the heavens into existence. Because it says they're his finger work. Okay? The power is there. And the girl got up. Mm. These hands pointed out spiritual relationships. From Matthew 12, 49 and 50. 
stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. They were trying to talk Jesus into leaving his insanity. For whoever does the will of my Father who's in heaven, he's my brother and sister and mother. Because see, Jesus, there were other children born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus. He was the firstborn and therefore got all the rights of the firstborn and everything else. But there were other brothers and sisters born to him. And he pointed, stretched out his hand toward Mama. Mama said, look, you're just overdoing it a little bit. Mamas have a tendency to do that. You need to stop, rest, get some sleep, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. And he said, no, I've got too many things going on here. He said, but I've got another family. I've got another family that I need to take care of. These hands also save the sinking. You ever felt like you're sinking in the storms of life and the quandaries of life? What do, you, what, do you, what do we often need? We just need his hand. We need a touch somewhere along the line. It says, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. This is Peter. Okay? But he saw the wind. And I, I love that because if you're going to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. <laughs> you know, he was the only one, as goofy as he was, that says, you just say the word and I'll come out there to you. And he got out of the boat. And he was fine until he saw the storm. And it says, he said, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why'd you doubt? He just had a great faith, didn't he? He had a great faith when he got out of the boat. But he got his eyes on the circumstances of life and started to sink. Isn't that the way it works? Sometimes we read the scripture. We sing along with a good Christian song. We do that, and we're kind of walking on water. And then we walk outside, and we're back into the storms of life. And the next thing you know, it says, our countenance would fall. Uh, Peter tried that, and he says, why'd you doubt? You had such a faith to get out of here. Why did you doubt? In other words, you started good, keep on. And that's what a that's what a good brother does, isn't it? A good brother doesn't tear us down. A good brother is one that encourages encourages us along the way of life. These hands receive the children. Or Matthew twenty nineteen. Some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone. Don't hinder them from coming to me. For the children of heaven belongs, uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The faith of a child. That's what he wants in all of us. Do we really trust him enough to get out of the boat? Peter asked to get out of the boat. Sometimes we want to say, Lord, put me in the boat. <laughs> put a cover over me. Calm the storm. Wake me when it's over. He says, nah, this life is much too exciting. See, doesn't this kind of go together with with the go and make disciples? 
It does, doesn't it? Because there'll be times that you get a little bit nervous when out there getting ready to give somebody the gospel. And you've got out of the boat, but sometimes maybe they're a little hostile and you're, you back off. He received the children, even with criticism. He healed the sick. He's real good at doing that. Sickness is just a little physical problem, and if he can bring universes into existence, no problem, if he chooses to do so. Some people think they can actually control God by having enough faith. Well, if I just get enough faith, I'll get God to do what I want. A lot of people have been taught that, and a lot of people have gotten mad at Christianity saying this God doesn't work. I need another God. I need the God of medicine. I need the God of science. I need the God of this, the God of that. No, we need the one God that is that is the one who can do whatever he chooses to do. And sometimes it's not his will. I pray that people would be healed because that's my desire. And he said, let your desires be made known. Okay? So I bring, I bring those desires in front of the throne of grace. But I also know that it is not his decision to heal everybody. Okay? That otherwise, nobody would die. Okay? If that was true, nobody would die. So you go in front of the throne of grace, I think, with a humility to say, this is my desire, because you told me to bring my desires in front of you. But not my will, but your will be done. And if you don't heal them, please sustain them spiritually through these difficult times. See, doesn't that seem to be more biblical? Take care of them. Let them have the courage, the spiritual strength to be witnesses to the very end. He healed the sick. He healed the deaf and mute from Mark chapter 7. They brought him, one who was deaf, and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. And he took him aside from the crowd by himself, and he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with his saliva. Now that just gross you out. If it's a divine spit, though, <laughs> so what? <laughs> Open up your mouth and go, here, Jesus, just, just shoot it in there, whatever you need to do. But this is, I, I love passages like this because it was, it was uh, so open. He's so, he's, he was, he's true humanity. He's just like you and I. And looking up into heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Apatha, be open. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. See, when the Lord does it, he gave sight to the blind. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus, and they implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes 
and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And then he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. I say Mike hasn't been able to see anybody since birth. He was the man born blind. But his attitude is such, the first person he'll ever see is Jesus. And he's fine with that. And God has blessed him to touch other people because he's accepted what God is, the hand God has dealt him and kept his attitude about it and has been a blessing to a lot of people. Can the Lord heal? He will one day. It'll be done, but not now. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons. We run into this in Mark, Mark uh, 9. Crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions. That's what demons did. After this, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand. Isn't it amazing how the, the hand keeps coming into play here? Took him by the hand and raised him. And he got up, and when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why couldn't we drive him out, the demon? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayers. Now the disciples tried, but uh, they weren't able to do this. But some demonic activity has is, is got to be confronted by the power of God. There's another place where the uh, Jewish exorcist, which is a hoot, found the book of Acts. And they, they were casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they said, in the name of Jesus, we cast you out. And they were using it like a magical formula. Until <laughs> the demon had said, you know, I know Jesus. <laughs> and I know Paul. But who are you? And so the demon came out, beat them half to death, took all their clothes, and sent them on their way. I really want a replay of that one when we get topside. His hands are the safest place you can possibly be, anywhere, anytime. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than everyone. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh, and by the way, I and the Father are one. The safest place you could possibly be anytime is in the hands of the Lord. Isn't that amazing to even think about? Sometimes when people are going through difficult times, I pray. Because see, if you're a believer, you're in His hands. That's part of what this is about. You're in the hands of the Lord. Are you secure <laughs> in your salvation? Huh? Some people don't think so, but guess what this says? If you're in his hands, there is no power anywhere that can snatch you out of the hand of God. Now, 
That should bring comfort. Sometimes when people are having a difficult time, I'll pray that they'll feel the warmth of his hands and fully know that that's where they are. The hands that he has are the hands of God. John 13, verse 3, Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper. He laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. We know what he's getting ready to do. He's getting ready to wash their feet. Now, can you imagine the hands that created the universe washing your feet? Would that be a humbling experience? It was for most of them. <laughs> but they still had problems. Gosh, you've got to just show himself to me. Well, they sh- Jesus showed himself to them for three and a half years, and they still had problems figuring it out. And you know these hands? They received our wounds. John twenty twenty, When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Those hands is where he got nailed to the cross. What we should have got, he got. So, the power of God's hands, we're letting the scripture tell us. These hands are absolutely amazing. So maybe one day we'll get to shake his hand. Wouldn't that be nice? He spoke good things to them, we're also told. Good things. He blessed them, is what it says. He spoke good things to them. And that's what we're supposed to do to other people. Romans 12, verse 14 and 15. Bless those who persecute you. That word bless, you look at, oh, speak good things to them. Bless and do not curse. When people come after you, bless them. Give them a piece of good information. And I would do it about the Lord. You know? He's got the whole world in his hands. Didn't we used to sing that song as a kid? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got me in his hands. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. We usually come up with something like sticks and stones may break my bones. but Something weak and lame like that. But it's, it's actually the truth. We're supposed to speak to others. This is part of being a fool for Christ. Now we shouldn't want to be foolish. The Lord's told us what being foolish is. That's when you're confronted with, with uh, facts and truth and you say no. <laughs> because you have volition and you choose the wrong way. 1 Corinthians 4.10 Paul says we are fools for Christ's sake. That's what the world thinks of us. What's going on in the Middle East and everything else, that group of people, uh, the, the 52 or so nations that are aligned with the Muslim faith and going after the Jews, one nation, 52 to one. Who's the bully there? They're going after it. And they think they're foolish because they think they've got the wrong God. Part of what's going on over there is all the people that they're surrounded by, or all uh, a lot of them, were were related to Abraham. Okay, 
And guess what happened? Well, let's see. Abraham had another son by the name of Ishmael through Hagar, Genesis 16, who was actually the firstborn. And he thought he was cheated out of the rights of the firstborn. He thought he was cheated out of the land, cheated out of the wealth, cheated out of everything else. And a prophecy was made about him in Genesis 16. says he'll be a wild ass of a man. Okay? And that's what has proven to be the case. And then you go farther and you get Esau. Out of that you get the Edomites located at the south end of the Dead Sea. And you get Esau down there. And let's see, what did he do? He sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. That's what he did. But his brother faked him out, right? So Esau got mad at Jacob. And he'd been mad at him ever since. Okay? Now what happened? What about the Moabites and the Ammonites? Those two groups, that's the people on the other side of the Dead Sea. Those two people, let's see, Lot, the nephew of Abraham, had an incestuous relationship with his two daughters. And out of that came the Moabites and the Ammonites. Let's see, who else is over there? Well, the Philistines are not related, uh, but that's where the, the they occupied the territory now that Gaza Strip is located. Philistines were probably came across the ocean. They call them, I think they're the Sea Peoples. It came from ancient Greece, and they sailed across there, and they put up a, a settlement in there. Oh, let's see, did Israel ever do anything to Greece to make them mad? Or to uh, Egypt? Where they are, yeah. Seems like they walked out and took all their stuff with them. Okay. And you look at all those people, everybody's got a problem with Israel. But what we're seeing now is not a political problem. We are seeing a supernatural hatred. We are seeing an evil that is hard to imagine. When people just want another people erased from from the face of the earth. And that's what they that's what they want. That's what is stated in their charters. They put that in initially. So are they going after are they going to stop? Is there any peace treaty that's going to stop this? <laughs> because it's of a supernatural uh, evil and it is a the the is the whole world going to get involved in it? Looks like they're trying to start things up, doesn't it? All over the place. Now, he says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. This is a little sanctified sarcasm. Prudent means practically wise. And he says, we are weak, but you're strong. This is the Corinthian church, who in chapter 3, he just says carnal. You're carnal, but this is the way you think. And he says, you're distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we reviled, we bless. When we're reviled, we bless. We give a good word to. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. 
We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even to now. So no matter how other people view you, how does Christ view you is the question. He spoke good things to them. He's basically passing on the blessings he gave to us. Which in Ephesians 1, one example, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Got a lot of blessings in there, didn't we? All in one verse. And blessed be. Speak good words about him. Don't deny him. Don't back away from him. Don't don't refuse to make comments when you have the opportunities. And this, this last point here is we must be careful to use our blesser to bless others. This is a passage in James, the third chapter. And it's interesting. He says, here's the tongue. It is a mighty flame. It will set on, set on fire a forest. That's what it does. With it, we use it to bless our Father and to curse men. He says, with it we bless our Father, with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. We're supposed to be able to bless other people. That's what the scripture tells us. It's not our calling to curse other people. It's our calling to give them a good word. And the best good word we know of is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Because in this day and time, sometimes we're, Lord, just let me get from day to day. You know, let everybody leave me alone. Let me go to Walmart and nobody bother me. It'd be nice if we could all be like Bert the coin guy. Provides all these coins. He goes looking for trouble. And he does a good job of it. Walks into Walmart with a vest with about 35 languages on it. He's learned how to greet people in about 35 languages. And he'll walk in and he finds somebody. And he says, well, the Holy Spirit will lead him. And he'll hand him a coin. A gospel coin. Often to a kid. And when a kid gets a coin from a stranger, what do they do? Take it to mom and dad. (laughs) First place they go. So he gets a conversation with mom and dad. He's been thrown out of so many Walmarts you can't even imagine. But he is, he says, this is the greatest gift in the world. He takes that little coin to start a conversation. And he goes intentionally looking for people to talk to. There'd be no telling how many people got led to the Lord by the use of those coins. There's a, about 10, 15 years ago, he said they bought enough aluminum. He finances all that himself. They bought enough aluminum to build two 747s. Okay? And the number of coins is somewhere above 30 million. I have no idea how many of those things have gone out worldwide. But what did he do? He just took something small, and he said, the Lord can use this. He's been using it ever since. We have tracks on the back table. Take some. Take some gospel coins. Just take yourself. Because you know enough by now to be able to share the gospel. 
with everybody. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your mercy and love and grace, for your blessings, for your test. And, Father, I just pray that this week that you will give us opportunities to bless others, to share the good news with them. Father, we pray that we'll have the courage to even look for some to share the good news with. And, Father, I pray that uh, more people will be added to your kingdom. We're hoping that the the body and bride get filled up right away because we're looking forward to that that great uh, horn in the sky. We're waiting for the trumpet blast and that our Lord has come back to get us. But Father, let us not be scared at what we see. Instead, let us be bold in our speech. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.